Good morning, Reality Carp. I uh, really love you, and I am so sorry that we cannot be physically together. Um, if you haven't yet seen our, our uh, previous announcement, we were uh, planning on beginning our in-person gatherings, at least providing those together um, in a public park in Carp. And uh, as of right now, the, the parks uh, have been closed, so our permit was revoked. So um, please be in prayer for us as leaders as we will be meeting this following week um, to continue to pray and seek the will of God for us, for you as a church in terms of our gatherings in this season. Let's be praying for our world, for our nation, for uh, the Lord to have mercy on us, to uh, continue to bring the coronavirus's uh, death countdown and um, that, that we would be safe and able to gather soon. Um, be praying that we can sing together. I don't know if you saw the recent um, I don't know what the right word is, um, mandate about California churches singing. Just pray for the body of Christ in California uh, in general. Um, and then obviously with all that's going on politically and um, all the hurt and pain in our nation, more than ever, it is clear that we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And I don't know what your week was like, um, and I don't know every detail of your heart and concern and burden of your heart, but Jesus does know. He knows you and he sees you. He knows every hair on your head. And so you and uh, all of us together are about to hear from Jesus, the living God. So open with me to uh, John chapter seven. John chapter seven. We will be uh, reading verses one through nine this morning. The title of this sermon is Jesus and the world, Jesus and the world. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. We'll read verse one through nine. Uh, let's be still now as we hear the very word of God for you this morning. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Holy Spirit, you have preserved these very words of Christ for us, for your church. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you use your word to speak to us as a sword. Thank you, your word is perfect. And it's in the heavens that endures that flesh 
and grass perish alike, but your word endures forever. Where else would we go today? But to you, Jesus, for you have the words of eternal life. Your words are able to save. Your word's like a hammer. It's like a fire. Your word leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Your word glorifies you, God. So Spirit of God, would you illumine our hearts and our minds? Would you give us ears to hear your word? So many people heard you with their very physical ears, Jesus, and yet they didn't truly hear. And so I just pray for Reality Carp that we would be a church that has ears to hear you, God. Would you speak now? Would you speak your word? It's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is more clear than ever that the world we are living in is longing for peace, for justice, for life, for restored relationships. We are longing for the very kingdom of God. The Bible is clear that we have eternal truths written on our hearts, no matter if we're a Christian, if we've never heard the Bible on our own hearts, if we are human, we have eternity written on our hearts and we are longing for a kingdom that is right. That, that's why people are so upset. That's why people get so upset when they see the world and its brokenness, when they see sin and the effects of sin. And so the human heart is longing. It's longing for things to be right again. Every human has eternity written on their heart. You and I are longing for things to be right again. But as Christians, we know that the the only way for things to be made right, the only way for the true kingdom of God to come and be experienced is through the king of the kingdom. And that is through Jesus. The only hope for the world, the only hope for true peace and restored relationships, the only hope for a perfect government is through Jesus, the king to be bringing his, establishing his perfect kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is the only way. And we know that Jesus will come. He will establish his kingdom on earth, literally, physically, visibly, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess and every other government will be subject to Jesus and his kingdom. But until that day comes, You and I are living in what the Bible refers to as the world, the world. Now the world is is not just literally the physical rock that is floating through space, though, though it includes that. When the Bible refers to the world, when John in his gospel refers to the world, he's referring to the kingdom of this world, to this place where The kingdom of God is not yet fully established where human hearts are in rebellion against God, where people reject God and his word. We are all living currently in the world. 
and the world does not love God and the world cannot love God. It is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the world. The Bible is clear that the whole world is under the power actually of the evil one. That for this time, God has allowed Satan to have sway over every unbeliever, over every heart that rejects God. We are living in the world. This is a theme that John discusses from the beginning to the end of his gospel. He discusses it in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We are living in the world, but we know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus the King stepped into human history and he died on the cross and he was risen and now he's seated at his throne and, and through the church, through the people of God, through those who have trusted in Jesus, who have the spirit indwelling them, we are like an outpost of the very kingdom of God in the world. So right now, you and I, if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you are a member, a citizen of the kingdom of God, but you are living in the world. We are like foreigners. We are like aliens. We are strangers as if we're visiting another country, another planet, another kingdom. And we know where our citizenship is. It's in heaven with Jesus as our king, but we're currently living in and amongst the world. And the Bible uh, juxtaposes these two ideas, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Now in our text this morning, as Jesus is discussing with his very brothers, his half brothers, if you will, they were born of Mary and Joseph. Jesus discusses three truths about the world. We see in these nine verses, three truths about the world. Now, if you look with me just for a little bit of context, uh, John 7 verse 1 begins with the words, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. After this is obviously referring to John chapter 6. Um, and, and from what we can tell with when we see John 6 is around Passover and John 7 is around the Feast of Booths, that's about a six-month period. And so um, John just briefly passes over six months that Jesus just spent in Galilee. And he doesn't tell us all the details of all the ministry in Galilee in those six months. You can actually learn a lot about those months um, in the other Gospels. But again, John, the gospel of John is not trying to be comprehensive and tell us everything Jesus ever did, but he's, he's intentionally honing in on a few significant miracles and a few significant teachings of, uh, of the life of Jesus. He's making unique points that the other gospels didn't make. And so he says, after this, and, and from John 7 all the way through John 10, Jesus, it's, it's within, it's a continuous narrative. It's even within a few days or weeks that we read from John 7 to John 10. And so after this, Jesus is, he's now finishing his ministry in Galilee. And uh, later in this chapter, he's gonna travel down to Jerusalem where he's gonna spend um, the rest of his ministry. He will not return to Galilee. So after this, after these six months, this conversation happens in John chapter seven. And now we are gonna proceed to see three truths about the world together. Uh, and the first truth we see, we see it in verse two, is this. The world is not our home. This world, 
this world that you are living in, this living room you're sitting in, if you are on a walk, this world is not your home. And I want you to see that in the text. Look at verse two. It says this. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. We'll just stop there. What was the feast of booths? Well, there were three Jewish feasts in the Bible that uh, every adult Jewish male was required to travel to Jerusalem, which is Jesus is about to do. Um, and they're required to do that three times a year. And, and the third of these was the feast of booths. Now, what is the feast of booths? If you remember, all of Israel at one point in the Old Testament were enslaved in Egypt. They were slaves for hundreds of years. And through Moses, God delivered them from their slavery in Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness. He saved them out of the kingdom of Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. But there was this period of 40 years, we know this, between their slavery and entering the promised land. And where did they live? Well, they lived in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. And, and, and what did they live in? They lived in booths. They lived in tents. And God instituted this feast every year where even when they were living finally in their house, in the promised land every year for a week, they would go pitch a tent outside. Either they would pitch it in their you know, front or backyard, or some of them, they would pitch a tent on their roof and they would go camping for a whole week. Now, I don't know if you like camping or not. I love camping, but, but camping is some work. Camping is not comfortable. You really experience whatever that weather is. You are experiencing that when you're camping. And these people, the Jewish people every year would all go camp for a week to remember there was a time when God brought them from out of the world, so to speak, to bring them into the promised land. And it was when they would remember that this world is not their home, that they are sojourners, they are aliens, they are exiles, that their citizenship, those who belong to God, their citizenship is in heaven. They remember that. They remember not only that they were delivered and were brought through the wilderness, but their true home is with God, that this world was not their home. And God saw it so important for them to remember these truths that every year they would, they would camp and they would remember this. Now, this is significant because this is the context of, of this whole chapter. And, and it's a theme that is gonna be drawn out in the chapter that this world, Christian, is not your home. That you, if you are a Christian, you were in slavery to your own sin. You were a member of the fallen world. You were a member of the kingdom of darkness. You were enslaved to Satan to do his will. And yet God sent a deliverer to come get you, to come rescue you, to pull you out of slavery and bring you into his kingdom 
And right now, you are in exile on this planet, a temporary resident of this world that is not your home. Your home is in heaven. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And this life and everything you have and everything you experience, it doesn't matter how um, you may live in a great mansion in the hills. This world is not your home. You are just passing through. You are in a tabernacle. This body of yours is a tent that is temporary. And the day will come when you will get a new body and Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth, one that will not pass away. And so the Feast of Booths, what it meant for them, it is still profound for the Christian. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. And so I just wanna even bring that home even more, apply that to us. Some of you are in a season of suffering. Some of you are in a season of extreme discomfort. Some, as a church, we're homeless. We can't meet in person. As a church, we are in a season of discomfort. I was joking, you know, the church throughout history has experienced various forms of persecution. People were burned at the stake. People were fed to lions. People were thrown in prison. Do you know what is probably the custom fit persecution for an American? It's simply remove comfort. Remove a comfortable sanctuary. Remove air conditioning, remove loud music, remove this environment that is so comfortable. There may not be a greater idol for the American heart than just comfort. But, but what do we do when we experience discomfort in this life? Where do we go? What do we think as Christians when we suffer? Do you know where we go? Do you know what we think? We remember this world is not my home. Every time you suffer, it is a a gracious reminder from God. This world is not your home. Every time you experience discomfort, it is a gracious reminder. This world is not your home. Another home is coming. A greater kingdom is coming. A greater government is coming. A greater worship service is coming. This world is not your home. We are to remember this, Christians. We are to remember even when the world around us is so broken, even when our bodies are broken, even when our hearts and our emotions and our relationships are broken, this world is not our home. I want us just to see one place in the Bible. We could turn to so many, but I want us to see one passage that reinforces this idea. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 29 through 27, Hebrews 12, 29, or 27 through 29 says this. This this is the Christians who were suffering. It says this. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Right now, we are living in a kingdom that can be shaken. Right now, we are living in a world that can be shaken. Right now, we are living in bodies that can be shaken. But when we experience shaking in this world, it is to remind us that we actually belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You are a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There is a king on the throne and he cannot be shaken. He died and he rose again and he is coming again. And you can rest your heart knowing I belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the first truth we are reminded of in this text is this world is not our home. We are living in a perpetual feast of booths, so to speak. Now, the second truth about the world we see in this text is this. This world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. This world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. Read with me verses three to five. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, a couple of things. Uh, We see here the brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers of Jesus. They come to Jesus and they've seen him do some miracles. They grew up with him. They, they, They had to be at least minimally, minimally impressed with their brother who could work miracles, who had some measure of popularity. But they realize, listen, Jesus, you're spending six months in Galilee. That's like spending six months in Carpinteria when Los Angeles is down the street. Jesus, if you want to be famous, with all due respect, carpentry is great, but this is not the place to do it. Why don't you go to Judea and do your miracles there? There will be millions of people there. Go show yourself to the world. Jesus, if you really want to proclaim the gospel, if you really want to establish your kingdom, if you really want to be known by the world, Why are you wasting your time here in Galilee? Go show yourself to the world. Sounds reasonable. Sounds reasonable. It honestly sounds like something that could be said in an American church. Do you know what? We need to expose as many people as possible to Jesus. Whatever that means, media, let's expose them. Whatever, it's outreach. Let's just get as many people as we possibly can exposed to Jesus. Let's use the best of our resources, the best of our talents, the best of our finances, our best people, our best looking people. Let's use everything we can in our power to show Jesus to the world. We want the world to see Jesus. That sounds amazing. This sounds reasonable. And yet John, the author in verse five, gives us this commentary. He says, 
for not even his brothers believed in him. And what John says there is that perspective is a perspective of unbelief. It is the wisdom of the world. It is using the values of the world and the strengths of the world and the resources of the world to try and establish the kingdom of God. It's saying this, just use everything you have and you can to bring the kingdom of God. Do you know what it's saying? It's saying Jesus needs you. Jesus needs me. Jesus needs human strength. Jesus needs popularity. Jesus needs exposure. Jesus needs to impress the world. This is very familiar, if you recall, to one of the temptations that Satan offered to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. If you remember in Matthew chapter four, Satan uh, tempted Jesus. And there was a time when Satan brought Jesus to the, the, the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, Jesus, throw yourself down and then let the angels in front of everybody rescue you. What a more amazing way to expose the world to your glory, to your majesty, to your power. The most, um, <clears throat> the highest point of the most important place of worship. Why don't you just show yourself to be at the highest point and you fall and everyone's gonna think, oh my goodness, but then the angels come and everyone's just gonna worship you. That sounds amazing. That sounds like a great idea. But that's the values and the strategies of the world. And as we know, as we see, it's actually the values and the strategies of the devil. That we would use what would impress the natural man, the wisdom of man, to build the kingdom of God. Now, this is mind-boggling to the natural human mind. And honestly, it can creep into a Christian's mind. The way to build the kingdom of God is through these great, amazing, impressive, showing these amazing things to the world, impressing the world, being popular with the world. Um, Paul talks about this extensively in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. And it's so, you guys, it is so important. I'm gonna read a large chunk of that for us. First Corinthians chapter one and two. We'll start at verse 18. So the world, it loves power. It loves wisdom. It loves external, impressive things. But Paul here is telling us, do you know the way Jesus establishes his kingdom? Through the word of the cross. The word, the good news, the gospel of the cross of Jesus. We're gonna read from verse 18 all the way uh, to chapter two, verse five. Says this, Remember this, guys, this is the heart of the values of the kingdom of God. That is 
in opposition to, stands opposite of the values of the wisdom of the world. It says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Pause with me there. We talk a lot about power. We talk about the Holy Spirit power. We talk about, you know, power from on high. Do you know where we see the power of God most on display? Do you know where the Holy Spirit displays his power? In the word of the cross, in the foolishness of the cross. Again, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, reality cart, we Christians, we members of the kingdom of God, what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, a few more verses from chapter two, and this explains why we are doing what we're doing right now, why we're reading the Bible, and not having some TED talk with all of the wisdom of men. This is why, this is why church, we open the Bible and we teach the Bible. Chapter two, verses one, one through five. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in much weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I could not more resonate with Paul. You guys, I'm not, 
the most impressive communicator. I'm not going to be the best storyteller. I'm not going to come up here and share with you all kinds of wisdom from all these books that I have read or written. I come to tell you about Jesus and the cross. That is the power of God. God intentionally made me weak. He intentionally made you weak. He made Christians weak and our message foolishness so that when people believe the gospel, it is clear God did something. God is the one who saves. It is the message about a God who came and died on a cross. That is foolishness, but it's the power and the wisdom of God. That is at the heart of, of the message of Christianity. That is at the heart of the methods of Christianity. We do not build churches on the wisdom of men. We build it on Jesus and Jesus crucified. And it's going to look unimpressive and it's going to look foolish. It did not make sense to the brothers of Jesus, but that's because they didn't believe in him and his message of the cross of the suffering servant of God who would lay down his life for the sins of the world. And so I wanna bring this home a bit for us, you guys. I wanna bring this, I wanna apply this for us. I wanna just humbly ask you, uh, with the, the, the situations you are facing, with the burdens you are facing, with the questions you are facing, with... Um, Whatever, whatever's going on in your life, again, I just wanna ask you, is Jesus and the gospel your food and your drink? Is Jesus and his word of the cross your greatest hope for yourself and for the world? Is your hope in a temporary kingdom, in a temporary government, in a temporary system, in temporary emotions, in the kingdom of this world? Or is your hope in the message of the cross, in the kingdom of God, the message that I will live this life as a sojourner and I will carry my cross and I will lay my life down? But Jesus is enough. Is that enough for you? Do you come listening to sermons, looking for Jesus and the cross? Listen, these people came to Jesus. They came to listen to sermons. They came to worship services, but they just wanted their temporary needs met. They wanted some more bread. They wanted physical healing. They wanted a better government, a governmental revolution to overthrow Rome. Now listen, those things aren't wrong, but those are not the main thing. That's not why Jesus came. He came to die on the cross and establish the kingdom of God and followers who would lay down their life to establish the kingdom of God and who would put their hope in the kingdom of God. You know, one of the things that's ridiculous about the kingdom of God right now is it just looks small. It looks foolish. Why would Jesus spend six months in Galilee largely with 12 guys who were not impressive, not educated, just fishermen? Why would he spend all that time with just a few guys? Why would he not go down and be famous? Because the the kingdom of God doesn't look like the kingdom of the world. It doesn't value what the kingdom of the world looks like. A true ministry, the ministry of Jesus was about discipling a few people 
largely unseen. He said, my kingdom's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds and it's planted and nobody even notices it. But one day it becomes the greatest plant of the whole garden. One day the kingdom of God will be the kingdom of, the whole world will be the kingdom of God. But right now it looks foolish. It looks like a cross. It looks like suffering. It looks like obeying Jesus. Even when the world is saying, do this or do that. And so, so, so as Christians, I want to ask you, what, what are you valuing? What wisdom are you looking to? What are your goals? Are your goals like the, the wisdom of the world? Does your life look the way the world says your life should look? Or does it look like the quiet, unassuming, faithful, disciple-making life of Jesus? We are to ask, does my life resemble the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? And so the first truth we see here is this world is not our home. And the second is this world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. Now we have the third truth in verses seven through nine. And this one is the least popular of them all. It is simply this, the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. Look at verses seven through nine. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now we just hear those astonishing words The world hates me. Jesus revisits this many times. He says to his disciples, if the world hates you, just remember it hated me first. You know, this is along the last point, this is mind boggling because we think that there's some way that if we just present Jesus and his teaching in some way that maybe the world will like him. Maybe the world will love him. Maybe we can impress the world to to win the world over to Jesus. But Jesus straight up says, the world hates me. And if we take a step back and we think biblically, we know, well, of course it hates Jesus. It's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom that belongs to Satan, the natural mind. It cannot please God. And Jesus even explains, well, why does the world hate Jesus? Why does the world hate Jesus? He says it in verse seven, that it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Jesus speaks the truth about sin, about murder, about abortion, about justice, about hatred, about sexuality, about gender, about marriage, Jesus speaks the truth. You know, some people say, you know what? I don't know about the Bible, but I just love those red letters about Jesus. I just love the red letters. Just give me the red letters. Just give me the, the letters uh, in red that, that Jesus said. Well, I got some red letters for you. They're Matthew 5 to 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever want to hear the quintessential message of Jesus, read Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus speaks truth and it cuts through 
the foolishness and folly of the world. He calls sin, sin. He calls evil, evil. He calls good, good. And when he does that, the world hates it. The world hates hearing truth. And Jesus is the truth. And so when Jesus speaks, the world rejects him. Now, that is true, but I want us to think even one layer deeper. I want us to to make this a bit personal for a moment and remember that all of us belonged to the kingdom of the world. And if you are a Christian, the gate into the kingdom of God is repentance and belief in Jesus. It is acknowledging my works are evil. My heart is dead in sin. I have rebelled against God. What's wrong about my life and actions is not just that I may hurt people, that I have rebelled against a holy God. And I must repent, I must turn, acknowledge, no, that is sin, that is evil. And I will believe in the truth of the gospel that Jesus came for sinners such as me. And so, yes, Jesus testifies that the works of the world are evil, but if we are Christians, we are lumped right into that. I too am evil. I was evil. My works were evil. I hated God, even my righteous deeds. I was just trying to justify myself and earn my salvation. That's evil. But Jesus came for me. Do you know what's amazing about God is even though he testifies the world is evil, John 3 tells us he loves that evil world so much that he came for it and he died for it. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of the holy God for whoever would acknowledge they need him. That's what's mind boggling about Jesus. Yes, he says the world is evil. And he says that to all of us but he loves the world enough to say the truth about evil deeds and to call every one of us to repentance and trust in him. And he says, if you do that, I'll take your punishment on the cross and you will have my righteousness, the very righteousness of God. And so we just gotta bring that home. First and foremost, have you acknowledged your works are evil? Have you ever acknowledged that to God? God, I have done evil things against you. And I trust that you love me and you died for me. And if I put my trust in you and I turn from my evil ways, I will be forgiven. Have you done that? Can you acknowledge, could you raise your hand and say, I was evil, I was dead in sins. Maybe I'm right now still evil, doing evil things, but I'm confessing to God, I need him. I need his blood over my life. Have you done that? And then Christian, are you walking in humility that says, I am no better. I am no better than the most evil person in this world. And the only thing I have going for me is the blood of Jesus and the spirit of God indwelling me, making me love God more. Christians call evil, evil, but we love evil people enough to say, I was one of you. 
And if you turn to Jesus, you can be forgiven. We have no moral high ground. We are on the same ground, but the blood of Jesus covers us. And so are we humbly walking in the blood of Jesus and loving others enough to tell them the truth? Your works are evil. You've sinned against God, but he loves you. Turn to Jesus, just like he has saved me, he can save you. Are you humbly walking in mission to your neighbors and those around you? God, help us to do that. And then I I gotta ask us this question. I wanna bring this all the way home for us Christians. Are we willing to stand with Jesus and call evil, evil? Are we willing to tell the world the truth? Are we willing to stand up, not fear men, not fear not being popular, not fear being misunderstood, not fear being hated the way Jesus was hated? Am I willing, on my social media, am I willing in my family relationships to testify to the truth that the world is evil? All of us have done evil things. But Jesus came to redeem and rescue us from our evil ways, our evil hearts. Will we stand with Jesus? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, you love us enough to speak truth to us. And God, I thank you that you love evil people like us. You love us enough to speak the truth to our sins, to our failures. Jesus, you died on the cross to remove those things, to forgive us, to fill us with your spirit, to adopt us into your family, to make us citizens of the kingdom of God. Lord, would we love you enough to speak as you speak and go pursue other people who don't yet know you? Would we put all of our hope not in this life and not in temporary circumstances? And would we not just come to you to get something from you, Lord? As so many people did. But then when you offended them or you didn't make sense to them, they walked away from you. Would you be enough for us? Would your wisdom and your love be enough for us? And would we be a faithful church that stands with Jesus in love for those who don't yet know him? Would we love them enough to speak as you speak, King Jesus? I thank you, Lord, that this world is not our home. I thank you this is not our greatest hope. And that whenever we face discomfort or suffering, we remember we have a better home. And I I thank you, Lord, that your wisdom is better than the wisdom of this world. This world is not able to save itself, but you are able to save the world. You have saved the world. You are building your church. 
And so, Lord, would we stand with you and speak with you then? And would we at Reality Carp see more of the world come to know Jesus? More people who are in darkness and are foolish and are living for themselves or for temporary things. Would we see the spirit of God use the wisdom of God, the word of the cross to rescue those who don't know you, that they would know Jesus and be called sons and daughters of God. You are able, Lord, and our hope is in you. Our hope is in you. So may your kingdom come. For you, Jesus, are our king. And it's in your name we say, amen.